Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. Sorry that my soundtrack is from the 80s. Come up with your own soundtrack. That is from The Last Temptation of the Christ, Martin Scorsese. It's a very interesting movie. Um, I don't necessarily agree with Scorsese's vision. Well, I recognize that he's brilliant. But Peter Gabriel's work on the soundtrack was just as good as Scorsese's technical work. But he came at it from a more solid faith perspective, I think. So, all right, I'm going to do this. Hand these out. Let's have a little discussion here. I'm going to talk about the difference. Let's see if we can talk about the difference between these statements. And I want to do this because I was once, uh, I was the director of deacon formation in the Diocese of Saginaw, Michigan. And I asked all the guys once, how do you understand the requirement that if your wife predeceases you, you cannot remarry? And we went around the room and every guy said, I'm good with that. I'm okay with that. I'm on for that. I signed the paper for that. And when we got to the end, I said, thank you very much, gentlemen. I am grateful for your obedience. But that's not the question I asked. The question I asked you was, how do you understand that? And what you just told me is, none of you understands it because you didn't even hear the question. The difference is, when a guy actually reaches that point, is he going to act on it or not? And if they don't have any understanding of it, what's the likelihood that they will act on that commitment? Chances are they'll fold. So last year I was teaching the deacon formation program in St. Louis, and I asked the guys, how do you understand the requirement? I said, but I said, notice the question, how do you understand that? And they started throwing out answers, and we just played a game for about 15 minutes where I would shoot holes in their answers. <laughs> because the basic answer was this. Well, you know, if, if my wife dies, that'll be really sad, um, but then I can't get remarried because as a deacon, then I can totally dedicate myself to the Lord. Yeah. So what you're saying is your wife is preventing you from being totally dedicated to the Lord. <laughs> How's that fly with her? And, and, oh, that's not what I meant. Well, that may not be what you meant, but that's what you said. So I'm pretty sure it is what you meant. And we went around for 15 minutes like that, and they just gave answers. Well, what was my point in doing that? My point was not to shoot holes in their answers. My point was, this is going to happen to some guy in the room. And we just know from national statistics that deacons fail when it comes to that. And I'm not going to be there with them sorting it out but they are gonna be there with one another, sorting it out. And so I wanted to teach them to ask hard questions to one another so they could help each other through if and when the time came. And they started to do that. By the end of 15 minutes, they were really working on it together, okay? Because a guy's gotta ask himself a basic existential question at that point if he's in deacon formation. I promised this to the church and now I'm going to ask a woman to marry me, and I'm going to promise to be true to her. And how can I expect her to accept my promise when she knows that I'm turning my back on this promise? So it's a deep question that they need to ask one another well before it gets to that moment. So I want to see if we can work through some of these together. What is the difference? I just put these in pairs. There are lots of stages here. I was talking with a guy on Saturday that was going through some of this. What's the difference between the first statement and the second statement? This is happening because there is no God, and I don't believe in you. What's the key difference between those? Yeah. Um, 
So the first is a statement of unbelief. The second one, this person is talking to someone. And they may not be listening for a response, but actually that's a prayer. And I was talking to a guy on Saturday, and just one thing or another, he was, he was wearing a SLU Law shirt. I said, you go to SLU Law? Yeah, I went to SLU Law, graduated a few years ago. My dad always wanted to be a lawyer, but um, he didn't get the chance to, so I did. I said, well, your dad must be really proud. He said, actually, my dad died during my first year of law school. And I said, well, I guess your dad's looking down proud from heaven, isn't he? And part of him needed to hear that. But as we talked about it just a little bit, one of the things he said was, yeah, I've gone through a rough patch in my relationship with God, and I don't go to my church very much, but I still believe. I said, so would you say that's more a question of not believing in God or being angry at God? And he said, oh, I'm angry. I said, you know, that can be a prayer. If you say, why did you do this? There's no answer there, but you're talking to somebody. And he said, yeah, a good friend of mine, he was a good friend of mine, we haven't stayed in touch then, since then, but he, he said to me at the, at the wake, everything happens for a reason. We haven't talked much since then. Why? Because it was a cheap answer. It's true that everything happens for a reason. That's not what he needed to hear or was ready to hear at that point. Because did the guy who said that to him know what the reason was? He didn't. One of the best things I ever said to a friend of mine who lost her nephew was, hey, Claudia, I know you look to me for answers. I got to tell you, I don't know why this happened. I can tell you I believe that God is right there in the midst of it, and I'll be here for you. That I could say because that I knew. And she knew whether I was speaking from the depth of my heart or not. So go there. Say only what you're able to say. And the one thing he said to me was, I wish someone had told me that it wouldn't always feel that way. And the only person who could tell me that was my grandmother, who lost her husband when she was 30 and then lost two children after that. And she said to me once, it won't always feel this way. And I knew she was telling the truth. Can you go there? All right. What's the relationship between the second two questions? Why is God doing this to me? And why is God letting this happen? Active versus passive, or active will versus permissive will. Do you know the difference between the active will of God, God is making this happen, and the permissive will of God, God is allowing this to happen? And if you don't, that's okay. God will teach you that difference at some point. If you know that difference from your own experience, then you can go there with someone. If you don't know that from your own experience, don't go there. Because they'll know. God has let things happen to me. And I have suffered them. I wondered how it could be that the Holy Spirit would be withdrawn from a situation and it would be left to its own human steam and to fail on that account. And I don't understand why, but I know that it happens and I know that greater good comes from it. So that's a theological distinction with real purchase for me. How about the last one? How can I grow closer to God through this? How can I offer this for others? What's going on there? Well, I would say, so if that's a, it's selfish versus selfless, yes. Now, if this is selfish, it's a pretty good kind of selfishness. It's pretty high up in the scale. Some people would say, you know, Mother Teresa, she was just really selfish because she got a kick out of serving poor people. Well, have you ever hung out with Mother Teresa? That wasn't the case, but, but so what if she did? That was a pretty good kind of selfishness, and the world could use a little more of that. It's not actually how they work. But. So the first is self-focused, and it's a holy self-focus. It's good. Right? This is like fear of the Lord that means I'm afraid of going to hell. That's good. 
It'll keep you from a lot of sins. Versus fear the Lord, which is a, a perfect kind of service and affection for the Lord. That's even better. Okay? So yeah, those are important distinctions. Now, here's the second thing I want to do with you. I want to sort through this, because we didn't really sort through it last week. Let me give you these. This is what we were talking about last week, and this is where we were stuck. And I want to be stuck here together for a few minutes. So on one side is the argument from free will, which, so far as I could tell, everyone was happy with. Or everybody thought, yeah, that, that makes good sense. And on the back side of it is the argument from free process, which is where we were not in agreement. That's good, too. I want to look at that. The first thing I want to say, well, let's just review it. Okay, should God permit free will? Simple flowchart, yes or no. If God does not permit free will, there's no possibility of sin, which is moral evil. There's also no possibility of love. Too bad. But it might be a reasonable price to pay. If God permits free will, then sin becomes possible, and so does moral evil, but so does love. So should God permit free will becomes the question. And that's framed in by, if God is love, his world needs to reflect that in some way. So you flip it over, should God permit free process? The first thing I want you to see is, this is exactly the same flowchart for physical evil as the previous one is for moral evil. If God does not permit free process, there will be no possibility of suffering or physical evil. The world is locked in to its paradisical state. Can you define the two again, like the differences between free will and Sure. Free will is when I make a decision, and that decision has implications for other people. Free process is the, ch the chair does not have free will, but it can move around. Atoms do not have free will, but they can move around. Cells do not have free will, but they can replicate themselves. The weather does not have free will, but it moves about, right? That's free process. But the, if God does not permit free process, there will be no effective free will. I'll have theoretical free will. I can think whatever I want, but I can't move the world around because it's locked in. If God permits free process, physical evil becomes a possibility, but I can also have effective free will, which means the possibility of love for a physical creature. Now, I'm gonna say these things. One, I haven't seen anyone who's gotten farther than this. And it's helpful. And it's better than many. You see some explanations of evil is, well, God makes everything happen for a reason. And I'm not satisfied with that. I don't think that offers much consolation. That's the cosmic tyrant or sadist that C.S. Lewis talks about, or the vivisector, maybe. Right? Well, God, let this happen so that this other good thing could happen. Well, I'm not much in favor of that either. You know why? Because I can't go to um, one of those places where they gather the children, the parents whose children have died of cancer, and say to them, see, God, let that happen to your child so that you could bring great good into other people's lives. I'm not going there. I do think God let it happen. But if I'm not allowed to do evil so that good may result, why should God be allowed to do evil that good may result? I do know this, that he does let things happen. I know that from the Bible. I know that from my own life. I know it from the newspaper. I also know from the Bible and my own life and the stories of other people that when he lets evil things happen, he does often bring good out of it. I don't think he let it happen for that reason. 
So this allows me to go into some places. But like you, I'm not satisfied with it. I have, an, uh, uh, I have two consciences, actually. I have a conscience that tells me what's right and wrong. I also have an intellectual conscience. My intellectual conscience sometimes is at rest. And when it's at rest, I say, ah, that's a good answer. And when it's not at rest, I say, something is missing here. I don't know what it is. So here's my question for you. That's good as far as it goes. But what exactly is missing? But my theological method is scientific in this sense. I don't imagine what might be in the world. I take the world as it is and ask, on the basis of these data, what conclusions may I draw about God? So here, I'm creating a world and asking, how would I make it if I were God? And for me, that's not a method I want to use. So that's my only objection to it. The content of that is absolutely true. But I don't see how I can defend it methodologically for somebody. Maybe that's my bias. So, right. so here's the deal. There are two parts of it. One, remember what we said from the catechism last week. God can do whatever is consistent with God's nature. He's confined to his own nature. Can God lie? Can't lie. It's not consistent with his nature. Right? So if there is, and we see this in Jesus, if there is sin, he can't not confront it. He has to. He sees something that holds his children bound, and he has to set them free. So the Holy Spirit is consolation. The Holy Spirit doesn't put you in desolation. The Holy Spirit must console in some way. He's bound by his own rules. So this is the first part. The second part is this. So long as he makes a world with people who are free, they have to, they might choose wrong. Right? As long as they choose wrong, there have to be physical consequences for other people. He can't lock them up in their own world if he wants to make not only a world of individuals, but a world that is called to a communion of persons because God is a communion of persons. So we have to have an impact on one another, for better or for worse. So if God was not a communion of persons, it'd be easy. Just create a bunch of individuals who are self-contained. So I think that's going to be the difficulty there. It's important for us to probe this. I don't, now, I don't have the answers, but I want to probe this because we're going to be stuck consoling one another. We have to know what we can say and can't say. I think this. God gave me free will as a result of which I helped to shape my own character for better and for worse. I can turn myself into something he would never have imagined or wanted. Or I can turn myself into the best version of myself that he made me to be. This is also true of Israel. Israel as a nation is given free will and they shape their own character and destiny. And you read about that in scripture, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. Does Israel become all that God intends for them to be? Well, not in the Old Testament and not yet because we are Israel. We are the new Israel, right? God founded his people and he intended them to be the pillars of the spiritual house and the kingdom. And if we haven't become that yet, Israel hasn't become that yet. By the end of the Old Testament, what has Israel become? A mess just like me. A mess, just like the church today. Divided amongst themselves, full of hypocrisy and deceit and holiness and good efforts gone awry. All of that, not fully what God wants for them to be. So they've shaped their own character and God is always right there in the mix, 
constantly drawing them toward all that they could be. And what we know from Scripture, if we can take Scripture as data, is that creation itself is affected by the sin of Adam and Eve. And creation itself is affected by our sins. I think that's right. That could be a disputed point, but I think that's right. We have an impact on the world. We shape the world itself. I mean, look around. We have. And the world itself is called the redemption. Because when John looked up, he saw the new heavens and the new earth coming down out of the sky. And after all, is heaven a place? Yes? No? You're not sure? Different question. Let me ask you a different question. Are there bodies there? If there are bodies there, it has to be a place. It's a different kind of a place, right? It's a transformed kind of a place. It has to be a place. So, yeah, I think God is there in the mix. I, I don't know that reacting is the right word. Sure. He's in there doing something, right? I, I think probably the clearest case for me is the case of Joseph in the Old Testament. God does not want Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. He allows it to happen, and then he brings a greater good out of it. He didn't let them do it so that the good would happen. He let them do it and said, basically to, to anthropomorphize, okay, what am I going to do with this? Something super creative. Ha! This! I'll make this happen. You know, and then you know how the Holy Spirit comes down and transforms the situation. Did you ever go into conversation and you weren't sure how it was going to go? And it went really well because the Holy Spirit was there? Wow, I never, knew, I never thought that would happen. That happens. So, all right, what's missing? We're going to figure this out. I don't know how far we're going to get. I think. But let me just rest in the tension with you for a minute. So, let me, uh, let me say three things about that. One, I don't think this is the best of all possible worlds. From a form standpoint, maybe not. I thought that's maybe what you were saying. Yeah, I'm not sure what it would really mean even from a form standpoint. Not, and basically, I'm not interested in that. It's a platonic approach, whereas I take an Aristotelian approach. That is to say, it begins with what could it be rather than what is it. This is what we've got. And I know sometimes I experience more than what we've got. Like, I, I have a brother who... Now, for how many of you just knowing what's right or wrong, is that the same as doing it? If I know that it's wrong, I don't do it. And if I know it's right, I do it. Anybody? I mean, not me. Good, all right. There are some people like that. My little brother is like that. For him, knowing that it's right or wrong is the same as doing it. Done deal. And that's why when he was at the Air Force Academy, he was the honor officer. Because they knew that about him. That's not me. I think that's a preternatural gift. That's a leftover. We experience people like that. That's how Adam and Eve were before the fall. And God just puts little people like that. He sprinkles them around in the world so you can see, ah, this is what it could be like. And I have days like that. Like one day a year. Like that. Where I just say, no, look, this, I need to have a hard conversation. This is what needs to happen. Lord, cross my path with this person at the right time. And boom, there they are. And it's this, I have this gentle, graced approach. And it's fruitfully received. And the next day is a disaster. And I say, where'd that go? What was that? How do I get it back? So I do think there are little things like that. Did you ever meet somebody who was just like inordinately strong? There's some people like that. Not because he lifts weights. He just is that way. <laughs> okay. It happens. So God, so I would say this. I, I always want, for me, it's a question of, look, my specialty is theology and science. So I always begin with the world as it is. So the second thing I want to say is maybe they would never have met. I don't know. But again, I'm drawing on a blank check. To me, I don't, think, well, I don't think natural evil is a thing. It's the absence of a thing. It's like a hole in a shirt. A hole in a shirt isn't a thing. It's the missing of something that's supposed to be there. The fact that I, knowing what's right, I don't do it. And knowing what's wrong, I do it anyway. That's an absence in me. 
That's not the presence of something. Something is missing in me. What's missing is integrity. Okay, so, I don't know. I, I do think natural evil is a, is a reality, but not a thing. But, I, you know, I, I have six children. They can create destructive things out of the most benign things I place in their world. Okay? So I don't know what to do with that. If, if you define evil according to will, there's no evil intent in them. But if you define evil as the absence of an integrity, there might be. Like cancers, are not, that's not how cells are supposed to reproduce, but they do. So in that sense, that's why evil is an analogical term. It's the same word, but it means a different thing because there's no free will there. What I know is this. What I know is this. Right, yes, okay. But it's a separate question how literally I want to read Genesis, okay? Fair enough. What I know is this, that my choices have impact, impacts on other people. I fence them in. And I know that I myself have been fenced in by my parents and their parents and so on. And I think um, the Hindus and the Buddhists are wrong, that we inherit the karma of a previous lifetime. But I'm not convinced that my ancestors didn't hand down to me spiritual bondages. And in that sense, I think the Hindus and the Buddhists are right. I think experientially, we're all reflecting on the same thing. I am born into this world and raised with more sin than my own life accounts for. And it's more than just the DNA and the choices of my parents. There's something deeper than that going on. And we all experience, Catholics, Hindus, Buddhists, that there is deliverance from that stuff. Right? We're connected in that way. We are. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that's our, I'm not doing a comparative religion thing right now. We could do that another time. I'd be happy to do that. Um, but that's, so what I come up with in the midst of all this is two distinctions. I do think there's God's direct will. He makes certain things happen. I do think there's a permissive will of God when he lets things happen. When he lets things happen, he can bring good out of it. There are other distinctions. So this is when it comes to the will of God. There are other distinctions within the will of God that we make, like antecedent will and consequent will. Antecedent will is 1 Timothy 2.4. God wills that everyone should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So everyone's saved, right? No, he gave us freedom so we can reject him. But wait, if he wills us to be saved and we reject him, then isn't God stuck? Well, theologians talk about the antecedent will of God and the consequent will of God. The antecedent will of God is that everyone should be saved. The consequent will of God is that virtue should be rewarded and sin should be punished. And people should have their free will and God will give them what they want. What if the universe is a giant wishing tree, the way the Buddhists suggest it is in one of their myths? And at the end of life, God says, my child, your whole life has showed me that this is what you want. And he holds it out to us. And he says then, you may have it. I'm so sorry. Or you may have it. Enter into the joy. I affirm what you have chosen. Ooh. <laughs> What's that? Is that that different than what Christians No, it's not. <laughs> There's a Buddhist myth that says the universe is basically a giant wishing tree, and in the end, you get what you want. Is that really that different from what we say? It's a way of thinking of the judgment of God. That's all. 
What if he said to you, my child, this is the book of your life? I am so pleased with this. Would you like to make some edits? Oh boy, would I like to make some edits. Uh, if I was offered that opportunity, do you think I would ask how long is this going to take? Because I have my list of people that I have offended and never had the chance to apologize to, not only apologize to them, but to make it right again. What if that was purgatory? Chance to edit the book of your life with Jesus sitting there giving you advice. Hey, want to rewrite this? Yes, please. It's an, it's an imaginative exercise similar to C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. You don't get to go back and do it again. But can you make reparation? That's what, what, if that's, what if that's the punishment of purgatory? What if that's the purification of purgatory? You have to face all those people and apologize and work through it with them. That would be lovely, actually. And I don't care how long it would take. I would rather make it right. Anyways, that's all interesting, but there are more important things than that, actually. So let's get to some of the more important things. First thing I want to do is look at a couple of things in, um, in A Grief Observed in sections 2 and 3. First, there's a big change between section 2 and 3. Did you notice? What, what would you say the change was? You don't know? Are you afraid to say? There's a big change though, right? Because at the beginning of section two, does he sound like the C.S. Lewis we know and love? By the end of section three, does he? Lewis is back. He's himself again. I would put it this way. Look on page 55 in this edition. Right here. But oh God, tenderly, tenderly. Already month by month and week by week, you broke her body on the wheel whilst she still wore it. Is it not yet enough? What's he talking about? Purgatory. <laughs> Go back to the previous paragraph. Her past anguish. How do I know that all her anguish is past? I never believed before. I thought it immensely improbable that the faithfulest soul could leap straight into perfection and peace the moment death has rattled in the throat. It would be wishful thinking with a vengeance to take up that belief now. Joy was a splendid thing, a soul straight, bright, and tempered like a sword, but not a perfected saint, a sinful woman married to a sinful man, two of God's patients not yet cured. I know there are not only tears to be dried, but stains to be scoured. The sword will be made even brighter, but, oh God, tenderly, tenderly, you broke her body. Is it not yet enough? He's talking to someone. He has not been talking to someone the whole time until right there. That's what changed. Before he was talking about God. That's theology. Sometimes well done, sometimes badly done. But it was never prayer. And what he needed was the least tincture of the love of God, which he wasn't going to get as long as he was yelling and not yelling at God like in a conversation if he had even been doing that it would have been different but yelling around God okay that's the first thing that changes or that's the the big thing that changes he's talking to someone compare that to page 43 where he says I wrote that last night it was a yell rather than a thought Go back to page 41 to see what he was yelling about. No, my real fear is not materialism. If it were true, we, or what we mistake for we, could get out, get from under the harrow. I am more afraid that we are really rats in a trap. Or we're still rats in a laboratory. Someone said, I believe, God always geometrizes. Supposing the truth were, God always vivisects. I wrote that last night. It was a yell rather than a thought. 
You have to know that about people. Sometimes it's a yell and not a thought. And when it's a yell and not a thought, you don't reason with them. Because they're not really in a reasoning space. I have six children. Sometimes they're not in a reasoning space. You go to your room. We will talk about this later when you're in a reasoning space. I do that with my children. I don't try to reason with them. And what the guy I was talking to Saturday morning needed at his father's funeral or wake was not everything happens for a reason. It was, I'm so sorry. Tell me about your dad. You just let him talk about his dad for a little while. Three things every kid needs to know. You know what they are? I was told this once by a, a nurse who worked with dying people. Three things every kid needs to hear. I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm sorry. The more specific you can be, the better. She said every kid needs to hear that. Every parent needs to say it. I was working with a 65-year-old man once. His father had just died. He said, my dad died. It was hard. He told me he was proud of me. 65, he had a fabulous career. He still needed to hear that from his dad. What does the person need at that point? It was a yell rather than a thought. He wasn't thinking. What was his frame of mind in all of that? He was yelling, but he wasn't consciously yelling at anyone. So that needed time and it needed relating. And time and relating made a big difference for him. Second, look on page 32. This is interesting. He's talking about the man who goes to visit his mom at the grave. <laughs> There's a lovely little vignette. Here we go. I remember being rather horrified one summer morning long ago when a burly, cheerful, laboring man carrying a hoe and a watering pot came into our churchyard and as he pulled the gate behind him, shouted over his shoulder to his two friends, See you later. Just going to visit mom. Men he was going to weed and water and generally tidy up her grave. It horrified me because this mode of sentiment, all this churchyard stuff, was and is simply hateful, even inconceivable to me. But in the light of my recent thoughts, I'm beginning to wonder whether, if one could take the man's line, I can't, there isn't a good deal to be said for it. Maybe Lewis is missing something. Maybe it's his blind spot. What if that guy's onto something? Because the, the C.S. Lewis that we know and love at the peak of his powers will always look at the common sense of faithful people and say, there's something wrong about that, but you know, there's something right about it too. But he can't tease apart quite what's right in that. What might be right in it? You see, at this point, he's not thinking quite straight. What does he want? He wants joy back in her old form. And what does God say to him? Nope, not going to get that. Uh-uh. Might there be something else on offer? He later discovers there is. At this point, he's not open to it. What might the guy be onto? Maybe the tidying up of the grave isn't the thing. Maybe it's the occasion for the thing to happen in his heart and soul. Because we are creatures of body, and so the physical proximity means something. I mean, why, why should kneeling in and of itself make any difference for your prayer? Or sitting, or standing, or lying down, as St. Ignatius of Loyola did. Do you have better and worse prayer positions? Why should that make any difference? Well, theoretically, it might not. But does it? And is it the same for everyone? No, maybe he's, maybe the hoeing and the raking and the tidying are just the outward occasion for a communication of the heart. And Lewis is missing it at this point. Well, go to pages 58 and 59, where he's made the breakthrough and now he's thinking more like himself again. And so perhaps with God. I have gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. Was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face? 
The time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just the time when God can't give it. You're like the drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. I was a lifeguard. This is true. Don't go anywhere near that guy. That's why lifeguards with their torpedoes, those are on a rope that wraps around you because you can throw it to someone or you hand it to them or you hit them on the head with it. Perhaps your own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice that you hoped to hear. I think that's probably what Lewis experienced. Well, remember earlier in page 18, when Lewis says, Go to God in your need. And when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. Page 59, on the other hand, knock and it shall be opened. But does knocking mean hammering and kicking the door like a maniac? After all, you must have a capacity to receive or even omnipotence can't give. Perhaps your own passion temporarily destroys the capacity. I think he's on to something there. Was God offering him what he needed? You'd be inclined to say yes or no, but you're afraid I'm asking a trick question again. (laughs) Yes, you think so. God was offering him what he needed, but was it what he thought he wanted? No, and so he was hammering and kicking on the one door while God all the time was standing at the other one. And why wouldn't God open that door? Because what did he think he wanted? He wanted one of two things. He wanted joy back. Give her back! And to that, the answer was the closed and bolted door. No. Firmly, gently, no. Not that. Or he wanted what Job wanted. You explain this to me. Why? And what did God tell Job? Did he give him an explanation? Nope. And so he says, no. You know better than that. I'm not going to give you an explanation. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where you couldn't give somebody what they thought they wanted? It's painful but loving. You've got to observe the 24-hour rule. They're not going to like you in the moment. But you can't give them the wrong thing. You can't give them what will actually be poison for them. So God won't give him that. But he wants something else for him. What is the other thing that he wants? The other thing that God wants to give him is what he doesn't get about what the guy's getting who went to mom's grave. There is a communication of the heart and of the soul with these folks. Again, not seers, seances, visionaries, clairvoyance. All that stuff is going to get you into trouble. But is there no communication with them? Well, he ends up with a communication, doesn't he? And he says, whew, it was bracing. Like meeting a pure intellect, something. Ooh, sorry, spoiler. Oh, no, that's at the end of section three. He has that experience. To that request, the answer was an emphatic no. I will not give you that. That doesn't mean I'm not here for you. What is the next phase? You look at pages 61 and 63, you see what it is. He talks about this. It was too perfect to last, so I'm tempted to say. But it can be meant in two ways. It may be grimly pessimistic, as if God no sooner saw two of his creatures happy than he stopped it. None of that here! As if he were like the hostess at the sherry party, who separates two guests the moment they show signs of having got into a real conversation. None of that! Happiness? Gone! Because we say that, right? It was too good to last. There's truth and falsehood in the statement itself, and that's what he's teasing apart now. But it could also mean this had reached its proper perfection. This had become what it had in it to be. Therefore, of course, it would not be prolonged. As if God said, good, you've mastered that exercise. I'm very pleased with it. Now you're ready to go on to the next. Our coaches work this way, don't they? And our teachers. Master it, delight in it, then they move you on to the next hard thing. He says that again on page 63. 
This is not a truncation of the process. It's one of its phases. We are taken out of ourselves by the loved one while she is here. Then comes the tragic figure of the dance in which we must learn to be still taken out of ourselves, though the bodily presence is withdrawn. Good. You came out of yourself there. That's what you were meant to do. That's what God does. He pours himself out in love. You had done that. Okay, that ends. What's next? How do I pour myself out in love now? That doesn't mean, by the way, that it's over. He thinks, oh, good, I've moved on to the next phase of my grief. And then on page 69, wham, it all comes back fresh one night. And just know that about people. They're going to spiral, and they're going to come around and again and again and again. Have you ever had to forgive something for like 10 years? Maybe you're not old enough for that yet. Maybe you are. Do you know what it's like? That it keeps coming back. I, 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 I brought this to confession. I forgave the person in my heart to their face, everything. Why does this keep coming back? Because you're spiraling around it. Because there are new things to be unpacked there. Increasing depths of forgiveness. Increasing depths of grief. You do come back around to it again and again. And that's what you see in the article that I gave you last week, My Life After Death, where she says, my life has gone on. I don't feel numb all the time. I still think he's going to show up in the door one day. Still fresh that way. That'll happen. So, knocking down his house of cards. John Henry Newman talks about this. He talks about notional and real assent. Notional assent is when you just believe something with your head, but you don't put it into action. Real assent is when you act on it. Like, how many people know don't drink and drive? Everybody knows don't drink and drive with their head. How many people drink and drive? Not looking for a show of hands. Don't do it. But of the people who drink and drive, how many of them knew don't drink and drive? 100%. They all knew it up here. They didn't practice it. Right? Until you had a loved one die in a car accident with a drunk driver. And all of a sudden, it's new to you. And you'll never forget that. I remember a bunch of kids in Boston, and the, the slogan at the time was, just say no to drugs. And they all learned that at school. And somebody got some super potent spray glue in the mail, and the kids sat around sniffing the spray glue, and one of them ended up in the hospital with brain damage. And all of a sudden, just say no meant something new to them. Or it didn't. They knew it all along. They knew it with their heads. Now they knew it in their action. And this is what Lewis is talking about, notional faith, versus real faith. He says, maybe I just, maybe it was just a house of cards. But there's a part of me that always knew this. But now when put to the test, what happened to me? I fell apart. I want to say two things about that house of cards and his falling apart. Pages 64 and 65. There we go. How far have I got? Just as far, I think, as a widower of another sort who would stop leaning on his spade and say in answer to our inquiry, how are you doing? Thank you. Mustn't grumble. I do miss her. Something dreadful. But they say these things are sent to try us. We have come to the same point. He with his spade and I who am not now much good at digging with my own instrument, which was the pen or the typewriter. But of course, one must take sent to try us the right way. There's truth and falsehood in that. God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. What was its quality? Pretty thin gruel. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. So two things. One, uh, what does that remind you of in the Bible? Okay, what are you building on? Building on sand or you're building on stone? Good. Peter denying Christ. Peter thought he had a pretty good house too. Put to the test, bam, failure built on sand, right? Does it make you think of Job? It should. Job thought he was pretty good. 
And for a good 30 chapters of the book, he was, kept the right attitude. And then eventually the pounding washed it away. And he had to be refreshed in his attitude. Should also make you think of the exile. Israel was pretty confident in their little house of cards. And it was built on their own strength. So God let it be knocked down. So they would have to rebuild on his strength. Happens to all of us. So here's the deal. This is going to lead to the second thing. Everybody's got a house of cards, unless you have preternatural faith. Some people just are all there all the time, and they always they know the full truth. They believe in it. They're never shaken. God bless people like that. I think that's awesome. The rest of us have a house of cards. And the question is, at that point where we have our house of cards, Fine, there's actually a better place to talk about this even. Here we go. Yep. Bottom of page 48 to the top of page 49. This wouldn't make a difference for a man whose faith had been real faith and whose concern for others' people's sorrows had been real concern. No, the case is too plain. If my house has collapsed at one blow, that is because it was a house of cards. The faith which took these things into account was not faith, but imagination. That's why I push you so hard on imagination, because imagination can run away with us. I also try to activate your imagination with music, because imagination can build, but you got to be careful. It's a dangerous instrument. The taking them into account was not real sympathy. If I had really cared, as I thought I did, about the sorrows of the world, I should not have been so overwhelmed when my own sorrow came. And that's true, isn't it? He didn't really know it, not from the heart. And now he does. It has been an imaginary faith, playing with innocuous counters labeled illness, pain, death, loneliness. I thought I trusted the rope until it mattered to me whether it would bear me. Now it matters, and I find I didn't. So I want to ask you this. How will the enemy play that? And how will the Holy Spirit play that? Y'all, many of you were here with Father Hazing, right? And he taught you discernment of spirits. If you were here for that, go back to your notes on rules one and two. In rule one, you're moving away from God into sin. And what does the enemy do? Encourage you. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Bite and prick your conscience. The enemy encourages you by getting you to imagine sensual pleasures, uses your imagination, and the Holy Spirit uses your conscience, different parts of you. When you're moving toward God, what does the enemy do? Places false obstacles. You know, you'll never be able to keep this up. You've failed before. What makes you think you're going to do it this time? So many people better than you haven't been able to do it. Who do you think you are? As the Holy Spirit quietly consoles and encourages and says, you can do it, no big plans, one step at a time, just today, just make it till lunch, just make it through the next five minutes. So here's C.S. Lewis in midst of this crisis of faith. I built my faith on a house of cards. It wasn't real faith at all, it was imagination. How's the enemy going to play that? You're right. You're a charlatan. You're this great worldwide expert on Christianity. You're a fake is what you are. And he's going to pound and pound and pound you down. What's the Holy Spirit going to do? The Holy Spirit is also going to say, you're right. You are a fake. Shall we go deeper now? The same reality, the same raw material is going to get shaped different ways. And that's what you want to watch for in yourself and in your friends. Watch for the false reasoning. Don't let them go there. Hey, wait a minute, brother. Hey, wait a minute, sister. I hear you on that. This is hard, and you never thought it would be like this. But don't go down that path. That's not the truth. 
The truth is you're strong. The truth is you'll make it through this. The truth is you won't always feel this way. Whatever consolation you have to bring, bring it there. What's the deepest truth that you can name at that point? What do you know in your heart of hearts? Whatever that is, there's the Holy Spirit working. That's deep truth. Heart will speak to heart there. Give them that. But don't let them get away with falsehood there. Don't let the enemy creep in there and undermine them. Two ways Lewis could go there, right? He could spiral out of control. Or he could let go and let God rebuild him. That's what Job did. That's what Peter did. That's what Israel did. All these things happened in history as lessons for us. Are you going to learn from them? That's the question for us. Well, I'm just going to say two more things about that. Ha-ha. Page 56 says this. What do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he's good? Have they never been to a dentist? That's a great phrase. It's like if you, if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you see when Peter and Lucy and Susan are going to visit Aslan for the first time and they ask Mr. Beaver, is it safe? And Mr. Beaver says, of course it's not safe. We're going to meet a lion. Mr. Beaver says, or Peter says, I thought you said he was good. And Mr. Beaver says, he is good, but he's not tame. Therefore, he's dangerous. Well, back it up a little bit there. Have they never been to a dentist? The terrible thing is that a perfectly good God in this matter is hardly less formidable than a cosmic sadist. So there's truth and there's truth and darkness mixed together here. The more we believe that God hurts only to heal, and we know this is who God is, he's the healer, the less we can believe that there is any use in begging for tenderness. A cruel man might be bribed, might grow tired of his vile sport. Toy Story, Sid, blowing up things. <laughs> That's not God. He might have a temporary fit of mercy. He might get distracted. But suppose that what you're up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. But is it credible that such extremities of torture should be necessary for us? Well, take your choice. The tortures occur, and that's just fact, right? If they are unnecessary, then there is no God or a bad one. If there is a good God, then the tortures are necessary. See, the Buddhists have a lovely version of this. They say, one physician may gravely exaggerate your illness and declare that there's no hope. You might call him a pessimist. Another one may ignorantly declare that there is no illness. And all your problems are solved. And you might call him an optimist. The truth is, both of them are equally dangerous. A third physician sees what the problem is, correctly diagnoses the underlying cause, sees that it can be cured, and administers the course of treatment. This third realistic physician is the Buddha. And that's actually the layout of Buddhism. What are the symptoms? What is the underlying cause? What's the prognosis? And what's the course of treatment? But what if Christ is the divine physician? What if there's some light there in Buddhism? What if they're right about that basic pattern and you see Jesus doing that all the time? But still, here's my problem. Is it credible that such extremities of torture should be necessary for us? See, it's easy to talk about his pains and Joy's pains. 
But when it comes to the pains of an 18-month-old to 3-year-old child who's dying of a painful cancer, no, I don't think it's necessary for us. And if I didn't have free process at that point, I don't think I would have any answer to the question of why. And I don't think a grieving mother or father in the midst of that needs a free process explanation. But six months before or six months after, they might want to know how it is that God lets these things happen. And we might do some exploring there. So I think Lewis is reflecting on his experience and reflecting well, but I think something's missing at that point. Is it necessary? The torture for you and I is necessary. The big fat ego needs to die. How does the big fat ego die? First through marriage. And who suffers that most? My wife suffers that most. And I suffer it third most because my children suffer it second most. And there are deaths that are necessary for me there, for my healing. And in his mercy, Christ will let me suffer those deaths. As he says, take your choice. Well, let's do this. These are all the things that are left unsaid at this point. I'll have to get to them next week. I want to end with prayer. I always want to let Jesus have the last word. Next week, I said there's something more important than all this. This, as I said, this is interesting. Remember I said there's something more important than this. Next week, I want to talk about what's more important than this. And that's these two handouts. I also want to talk about Arrival. Watch the movie Arrival. And I want two things from you. One is analysis. Just for yourself, analyze Amy Adams' experience and Jeremy Renner's experience. So analyze somebody else. It's easier to analyze somebody else. And then synthesize your own experience. You've watched them, their experience of time, and how they face suffering in light of their experience of time. Okay, what's your experience of time? And how do you face suffering in light of your experience of time? And could it be more informed by faith? And what would that mean for you? And whatever that is, my advice to you is going to be use the weapon. Use the weapon. I try to. As I said, I don't believe in time. Or sometimes I use it, but I keep it in my pocket because it belongs to me. What is your weapon in that sense? So I want to talk about that. As we get more and more into letting you guys do more of the talking. Let's close with this. Let Christ have the last word. A couple minutes. That clock's fast. I just need two minutes here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Who would believe what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a sapling before him, like a shoot from the parched earth. There was in him no stately bearing to make us look at him, nor appearance that would attract us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering, accustomed to infirmity, one of those from whom men hide their faces, spurned and we held him in no esteem. Yet it was our infirmities that he bore, our sufferings that he endured, while we thought of him as stricken, as one smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our offenses, crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole. By his stripes we were healed. The Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity. If he gives his life as an offering for sin, he shall see his descendants in a long life, and the will of the Lord shall be accomplished through him. 
Because of his affliction, he shall see the light in fullness of days. Through his suffering, my servant shall justify many, and their guilt he shall bear. Therefore I will give him his portion among the great, and he shall divide the spoils with the mighty, because he surrendered himself to death and was counted among the wicked. And he shall take away the sins of many and win pardon for their offenses. Seven hundred years before Christ that was written. As if God were speaking right to us saying, this is my plan to deal with suffering. And I want to show you that it's in my hands. So Heavenly Father, send the Holy Spirit upon us. Draw us close to the heart of Christ who suffered for us. Help us to understand suffering more deeply so that we may bring others your consolation in the midst of their suffering. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen. St. John Paul II, pray for us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See you next week.